I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass, I that am rudely stamped, and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them, why I, in this weak, piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to see my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. All right, we need to do at least one obituary for today's program, which would be that of Richard III, which is not one of our fresher obituaries, being that, as you all know, of course, Richard died at the Battle of Bosworth to Henry Tudor on August 22, 1485. But rather amazingly, and I gather quite unexpectedly, the bones of the 500-year-old dead Richard recently turned up in Leicester, England. To quote from John Burns, New York Times, Until it was discovered beneath a city parking lot last fall, the skeleton had lain unmarked and unmourned for more than 500 years. Friars, fearful of the man who slew him in battle, buried the man in haste, naked and anonymous, without a winding sheet, rings, or personal adornment of any kind. In a space so cramped, his cloven skull was jammed upright and askew against the head of his shallow grave. But confirming what many historians and archaeologists had suspected, a team of experts at the University of Leicester concluded on the basis of DNA and other evidence that the skeletal remains were those of King Richard III, for centuries the most reviled of English monarchs. The conclusion, said to have been reached beyond any reasonable doubt, promised to achieve much more than an end to the oblivion that has been Richard's fate since his death at the Battle of Bosworth. The DNA part of this is kind of interesting. The researchers tracked down some modern-day descendants of Richard III's family, specifically two living descendants of Anne of York, Richard III's sister. One of them was a London-based Canadian-born furniture maker, the other a distant second cousin who has requested anonymity. They were able to do the match using mitochondrial DNA, the genetic element inherited through the maternal line, and that matched those extracted from the parking lot skeleton. Now, you English majors may recall that Ing Richard III makes one of Shakespeare's best villains. This no doubt has a lot to do with the fact that Shakespeare, or Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, as he was better known in real life, was a member of the Elizabethan court. Elizabeth, of course, being one of the Tudors, the descendants of the man whose forces defeated Richard and became king. The whole saga of, uh, of, of this, uh, this, this line of succession is such a great soap opera. We're going to have to do it more properly by having someone come on and, and talk about this. Maybe our own Dr. Andy Jones. Dr. Andy would be a perfect person for that, I think, and along with maybe some historian if we can find one. And we're going to see if we can't do that. The skeleton, by the way, did confirm the fact that Richard did have scoliosis which would have made him a bit crook-backed, but he did not have a withered arm as portrayed by William Shakespeare. There are some that say that Richard does now deserve to be buried with the rest of England's kings, and uh, that may happen, as now in modern times, he's, his rule is getting a bit of a rethink. Of course, even if he wasn't the villain that Shakespeare portrayed him, he certainly had a bit of villainy in him. 
And then apparently he did become king by making uh, the royal heirs, his nephews, disappear. On the other hand, as far as we know, he never addressed Parliament with stories of weapons of mass destruction, which should lead to war. So, you know, things do balance out in the long historical perspective. And we're going to bring Sean Minton, our sports, uh, our sports expert, on the program in the next couple of weeks. And one of the things we're going to talk about is how the Olympics is now going to let wrestling go. Wrestling, the sport that goes back to the original Olympics in ancient Greece, which, of course brings up the question of how could we possibly let wrestling go and yet retain synchronized swimming? Or for that matter, dressage. You can bet Sean will have an opinion on that, and we're keen to share that with you. Oh, you know, in talking in our last segment about, uh, about China and things in Asia, we left this one out. This one being a, a reprint of an editorial from the Nairobi Star, which appeared in The Week magazine which notes that China cannot avoid its culpability for the slaughter of elephants in Kenya. This, of course, has been showing a huge upswing of late. The poaching is the result of the soaring world price for ivory, driven by the insatiable demand of the new Chinese middle class for ivory status symbols. The poachers sell their ivory here in Nairobi to Chinese middlemen who ship it to China. Just last week, the Chinese ambassador here insisted it was not his country's problem because Chinese nationals are not the ones pulling the triggers and poaching the elephants. But that argument is disingenuous at best. Is it legal to buy stolen property in China? Can you buy a stolen car in China? But then argue that you're not a thief? Chinese people may convince themselves that the ivory figurines they buy are antiques or are carved from some sort of legitimate harvest or leftover stock from better days, but surely Chinese diplomats know better. In Kenya alone, some 2,000 elephants are killed for their tusks every year, and at this rate, Africa's elephants will be wiped out in the next two decades. If China were serious about cracking down on illegal ivory, it would halt all ivory imports immediately. It knows full well that virtually all the ivory arriving in China has been stolen from Africa. And, you know, we do have some proper obituaries. We're just uh, months behind on at this point. Let's do one brief mention about the obituary for 2.4 million birds and 12.3 billion mammals every year in the U.S., which are the new figures being slapped onto what our local pet cats are taking. Noted Peter Matra of the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, a new study on cats shows that the domestic cat is a non-native species and it preys not just on vermin like rats, but also on native shrews, squirrels, chipmunks, and voles. Researchers now say that stray cats account for most of the damage, but pets that are let outside to roam do up to 30% of the killing. An average roaming house cat researchers say kills up to 18 birds and 21 mammals annually. And I also want to talk about a non-obituary for Abraham Lincoln. The current issue of Smithsonian has a piece about an assassination plot on Abraham Lincoln that was thwarted. That's quite an interesting read. The article by Daniel Stashauer I think is worthy of a few minutes of our time. The article notes that when Abraham Lincoln learned he'd been elected president, he was in Springfield, Illinois, in the telegraph office. And the results came in about 2 a.m. Lincoln began planning the uh, railway journey he would need to take to get from Illinois to Washington, D.C. for his inauguration on March 4th. Yes, and unlike current times where we have a presidential inauguration on January 20th, back then they waited till March 4th, which was frankly too long from Election Day. That's why they changed it. 
But uh, while Lincoln was starting his planning back in Philadelphia, at least one railway executive, Samuel Morse Felton, president of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, believed that the president-elect had failed to grasp the seriousness of his position. Rumors were reaching Felton about uh, Southern sympathizers that were determined to prevent Lincoln from ever getting to Washington, D.C. Felton had a vested interest in this because some of the plans involved apparently (laughs) destroying the rail lines that uh, were his north of Washington. Apparently Felton recalled later that he then determined to investigate the matter in my own way. He apparently dashed off a telegram to Alan Pinkerton, founder of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. Pinkerton had been the first official detective for the city of Chicago and was admired as an incorruptible lawman. And he had previously crossed paths with Abraham Lincoln. Now, it seems pretty much forgotten by history that Maryland was a state that was a slave-holding state, being south of the Mason-Dixon line, and might very well have joined the Confederacy, which would have put Washington, D.C. in a pretty precarious position. The Maryland legislature was debating about whether to join the Confederacy, and it was becoming clear that uh, Lincoln, in traveling from Springfield East, would have to pass through Baltimore, where there were a lot of Confederate supporters. So to head off some possible plots, Pinkerton moved to Baltimore, posed as a stockbroker, and put some of his people out uh, to carouse in the bars and to, to figure out what people were saying and perhaps uncover some plots, which, soon enough, they did. Pinkerton and his people soon um, found themselves in the company of some people who were planning to prevent Lincoln from passing through Baltimore. One man in particular said he would see to it that Lincoln would never reach Washington and never become president. Pinkerton sent a telegraph off to one of Lincoln's associates, warning him that there was serious problems with the president-elect passing through Baltimore, and they'd better change their plans. In fact, by the time Lincoln was moving east, plans were in place for eight men to attempt to shoot the president as he transferred rail lines in the city of Baltimore. Lincoln was told about this possibility and was resisting the notion of changing his plans, feeling he was a man of the people, so Alan Pinkerton went to him personally to assure him of the danger. Noted associates, Lincoln liked Pinkerton and had the utmost confidence in him as a gentleman and as a man of sagacity. So they worked out a ruse where Lincoln would pretend to remain in Pennsylvania in Harrisburg with the governor and instead would sneak aboard a train and pass through Baltimore, hours before he was supposed to, in the middle of the night, and thereby escape the attention of those who would do him harm. The plan worked, but as described in some detail in the article, there were some nail-biting moments where Lincoln, guarded by just a few men, had to wait for the connecting train that would take him to Washington. Had those who had meant to do him harm found out about his presence in the city and a mob had formed, it would have been... uh, it would have been impossible for his uh, bodyguards to have protected him. The article notes that during the Civil War, Alan Pinkerton would go on to serve as chief of the Union's intelligence service in 1861 and 1862. It's noted that when news of Lincoln's assassination in 1865 reached him, he wept. Pinkerton mourned, if only I had been there to protect him as I had done before. All right, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Now let's go out with a few quotes about love and romance, shall we? Starting with this one from Dorothy Parker. By the time you swear you're his, shivering and sighing, and he vows his passion is infinite, undying, 
Lady, make a note of this. One of you is lying. Or this one from Woody Allen. Sex without love is an empty experience. But as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. One from Gary Shandling. I'm dating a woman now who evidently is unaware of it. Of course, we have Groucho Marx's, I was married by a judge. I should have asked for a jury. And there's Rodney Dangerfield's, My wife and I were happy for 20 years. Then we met. And finally, words of wisdom from Joan Crawford, who said, Love is a fire. But whether it's going to warm your heart or burn down your house, you can never tell. All right, that about wraps up our Valentine's Day show. Make the most of it, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next week.